on today's show. Can I tell you the only place that there is an actual remedy with some hope is in a gospel that reconciles all different shapes and varieties of sinners in one unified new humanity. I mean, the reality is the world is attentive to this brokenness and trying externally to figure out ways to come up with a fix. But there's no reason whatsoever, especially on a purely evolutionary expectation of how the world works. There is no reason that they would have any confidence that this is possible or even evolutionarily desirable. Stay tuned. And welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Communications and Media with ABWE, here again with Scott Dunford, pastor of Redeemer Church in California, and joined today again with a special guest, a returning guest to the show, Matt Bennett, who is Associate Professor of Missions and Theology at Cedarville University. Previously, he served as a missionary with the IMB. He served in several other roles, and we're thankful to have Matt on as well, and we're thankful to have you as well. If it's your first time or if you're a returning listener, this show's a blessing to you leave a rating leave a positive review do all those sorts of podcast things that help us appear in front of more people that can be blessed by the content but you know scott this is a critical time to be thinking about missions issues not just overseas and abroad but right here at home and you live in a, a very different part of the country than i do you're seeing different things than i do but i think we can all agree america needs jesus more than ever uh, i think that's impossible to overstate Am I wrong? I mean, I, I think I would say as much as ever. I don't sure. know if you would agree with that, but but uh, do we see less evidence of of Christianity all around us and of loving Christ and Christian virtue and fruit of the spirit? Yeah, like for sure. It's in one way when I talk to my kids about the decay we see around us. In some ways, is should be expected. If you reject God, you reject His laws and commands. What should the fruit be? The fruit we would expect if, if the Bible's true is exactly what we're seeing in our society today. So it's discouraging as a lover of this country and a lover of the people around me and my neighbors. It's also, I think, indicative of what happens when we turn our back on what God has asked us to do. And it's a difficult thing for sure. So, yeah, I, guess I agree with you. Yeah. So shocking. <laughs> If you're an American evangelical listening to this, which chances are a lot of you are, and uh, if you're not, maybe you know one, but we could use some hope right now. And so, Matt, you've written a book with some hope for American evangelicals, haven't you? Yeah, I hope so anyway. Uh, it's, uh, that's part of the title, Hope for American Evangelicals. And the attempt of the book is to lend some missionary lenses to people to look at the surroundings that may be more familiar than they are foreign and to consider what might it what might it do to some of our perception of the, the brokenness that we are coming into contact with, even within some of our practices and familiar spaces within the church, and to look at those particular things with the concerns and skills and tools of a missionary and to consider, man, uh, let's not abandon this really good thing, but let's instead take stock of, of places where maybe some refurbishing mm. is is in need. Mm. And you're drawing insights into the mainstream from a name that a lot of people probably haven't heard of, but a lot of missiologists and missionaries will know the name Leslie Newbegin. 
but you're taking his insights and applying that to kind of the broader landscape of, of the American church. Explain to us why Leslie Newbegin, why is he the right person to focus on for where we're at right now as a church in North America, especially in the United States? What makes him the right person and why him versus, say, a, a Francis Schaeffer mm. or, or even other missiologist choices like a, a Ralph Winter or a David Bosch or, or a Paul Hebert? What, what are your thoughts on that? How did you arrive at that as sort of the premise of the book? Yeah. No, that's that's a really good question. And uh, to zoom back just a little bit to give some framework for the, the organizing metaphor for the, the book, I'm, I'm building each chapter around kind of a remembering what it was like mm-hmm. for me to return to my childhood home in order to prepare it mm-hmm. for sale and to do so after having been gone from the home uh, for about six or seven years. And so the the organizing idea is when you return to a place that is familiar and beloved, you have all the layers of nostalgia as you walk through the space. But particularly if you're looking at that space with fresh eyes of having been maybe removed for a season and also coming back and trying to say, I want this space to be perceived Mm. at its best for a potential buyer you begin to realize like, oh man, there's some nostalgia as to how we how we know that the, the kitchen cabinets have some stickiness to them. And honestly, it's it's always been that way. The, the lacquer was put on wrong. And so we've just always known you have to pull a little harder than maybe you think you do in order to get the, the cabinets to open. That's just part and parcel with what it means to live in this house. And as a kid, I didn't know any better. I just accommodated my habits to those infelicities. But then when I came back six years removed from the house trying to say, how do I present this, this home at its best to somebody who doesn't have the benefit of familiarity and nostalgia as Mm -hmm. they look at it, there's some things that need to be attended to differently. And so layering that sort of a return home and an inspection and investigation with different lenses lent me to looking at Newbegin and kind of how he really became a prolific writer after having spent 40 years as a missionary in India and then coming back for sort of a swan song of ministry um, in the church and in in the academy late in life in a place that was more familiar. So he had exercised these reflexes and used these tools as a missionary for 40 years in India. But then he returned home and realized those tools and those lenses were, and those reflexes were just as important mm. to apply in places that seemed familiar as they were elsewhere. And so he's kind of lived this return and this employ of missionary tools in a place that is more like home. And I think the thing that draws me to him most centrally is his commitment to the church as the, the centering hope to be the people who actually read and are chastened by and living out the biblical story in community in a way that's going to be a challenge to the surrounding community, but also mm-hmm. an invitation. Um, so his ecclesiology and his his experience as a returning missionary uh, would be the things that drew me to him. So he's able to better see the infelicities of American church culture. I love that you yeah. use that word. Yeah. See, Alex, that's how we know we're dealing with a PhD because infelicities just comes out of his mouth like that was just something. I'm glad he uses I'm not the only person that picked up on that. I was I was hearing that. I'm like, wow, infelicities. Okay, here we go. 
Matt, I feel like I feel like I've known you a long time, and I did not realize how smart you were until that moment. (laughs) All the Arabic Uh, stuff, uh, all the theology infelicities is what like cleared it up for mm -hmm. me. So, no, I I love what you lack content. You'd put veneer. (laughs) (laughs) I can smell and feel those cabinets as you're describing that. Yeah, I think like your cabinets, you're you're laying on those those words a little (laughs) thick. There might get a little bit sticky there. But you mentioned the church. You know, Scott, we were we were looking at that as we were putting together some questions for this interview. Is is the role of the church too? So that's central for for Leslie Newbegin. That's central for Matt too in this book. That's central for us. Yeah. So I I love the fact that your book sets out that that missional theology. So asking the question that comes up a lot is, does the church exist for mission or does mission exist for the church? Or I read somewhere today, JT English is like, you know, the church exists for discipleship. What is it that that you're that you're focusing on here in the book? Hmm. Yeah, well, I I think that sometimes we we take those two things and we make them distinct Mm -hmm. in a way that Newbegin would push us to say they are. They're two different categories in a sense, mm-hmm. mission and church, but they're intimately embedded in one another in that mission, the mission of God, after the resurrection of Christ, the pouring out of the Spirit is going forward in the building of his church against which not even the gates of hell mm-hmm. will prevail. And so as Jesus has promised this as the plan A primary vehicle of the advance of his kingdom, the church, as it is the environment for discipleship, reinforcing the teaching of scripture and calling people to be chastened by the story of the Bible and to then live it out, is inescapably caught up in this mission such that to be the church is to be part of God's mission. And so I think, and I'm nuancing a little bit there in that I I would still retain a category for missions with an S that is the targeted strategic Mm -hmm. attempt to focus on places where there's a lack of access to the gospel. So I'm I'm not conflating those things, but I think that the church is not a cul-de-sac just collecting people and waiting for the eschaton, but the church is a vehicle of of the inbreaking kingdom of God, and therefore it is implicitly missional. Mm. Like, mission is embedded in the church right. inextricably. So the last time that I read you discussing Newbegin and pulling quotes from him, it was in an article that you ran on ABWE. You can still read that article. Uh, it's on abwe.org slash blog. Just search for Matt's name. But Matt, you were engaging with Aaron Wren, who we've had on the show as well, and his Three Worlds paradigm, which came out in an article last year that blew up in First Things magazine, talking about, okay, the negative world where where sort of American culture was, mm-hmm. where it, it got you positive social capital, cultural capital with your neighbors to be seen as a Christian, whether you were or not. Then there was a period from maybe the, the 80s. Uh, or 90s into, I think he says, uh, roughly right around the time of, of 2013 or Obergefell, the neutral world, right, where it, it didn't it didn't gain you or lose you any social capital to be a Christian. And now he p- puts us in the negative world, right? And you you pushed back on a few things that, that he came up with and you used Newbegin. So give us through that lens of Newbegin's missiology, where you actually see the missiological landscape in the U.S. today in particular, since that's what you're speaking into, you're giving us a model then for how do we engage on that landscape. So paint that picture for us of where we're at now. 
Yeah. So just to clarify, I, I think Ren's assessment of sort of those different developments is a really good heuristic to look at how do we understand the church's reception in broader culture over these different stages. And it's important for us to realize what does it mean to say the gospel in positive world versus neutral world versus negative world. So yeah. he's right to call our attention to that. And I want to affirm that. I think where he led some of the suggestions as to how now do we react in neutral world struck me as perhaps missing the fact that the church should always be reforming itself and always be expecting that the biblical story, the biblical commands, the biblical teaching and the living out of the gospel is always going to be challenging the church, whether it's comfortable mm -hmm in positive world or whether it is really increasingly uncomfortable in negative world, that the the challenge for the church in how it lives out the gospel begins with attending to how the gospel is going to confront us. And so we're always to be at a point of disjunction with our culture, not necessarily in a positive world, taking on some of the leisurely approach to the forms that we can draw on that are received happily by our neighbors and now being more critical of, of how refined we need to be in negative world, but saying that the, we're always refining internally. And therefore, if the gospel is always going to be challenging people internally, then it should also be always challenging people externally. Mm -hmm. Even if they perceive the church as a good thing, there should be a sense of challenge even in positive world that the gospel is calling people to. And so that's where I think Newbegin's missiology mm -hmm. is saying we are always being confronted by the biblical story and having to be chastened in the way that we live it out as Christians. And the way that we live it out in community is one thing, but the way that we live it out on mission is another. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I think Ren's attentiveness really helps us is to become attuned to what are the words that I'm using that I, that I must use to describe and to explain the gospel in this context, what are the words that are now becoming more clouded in terms of their reception? So words like love in our, in our context. We use the word love as Christians in our day-to-day -day in ways that we can describe our love of God at the same time mm -hmm. as our love of pizza. And so there's already a sense in which our use of that word is conditioning us to a really wide lexical range. So when we read it in scripture, we're coming with a whole different set of assumptions that may or may not correspond to the way that scripture is using that word. And so our task is to say, I don't want to use, I don't want to read love and hear what I mean by love. I want to read love and hear what the Bible means by love. Mm -hmm. But if I'm going to say that out in the broader culture, I also need to be attentive to the fact that God is love has become love is love. <laughs> and therefore, I need to be cautious that or aware that when I say the word love, my neighbor is hearing it in that framework, not necessarily in the biblical one. So my active contextualization is going to be inviting yeah. them to refine their reception of this word. Yeah, if I if I could just reflect on that real quick, that does raise the challenge because we're we're talking about how do we apply a missionary approach here stateside, and we we understand that to go overseas or to go into another cultural context means 
language learning or at the very least cultural acquisition, even if there's less of a language barrier, because the the different semantic ranges that words take on and, and concepts relating to those words uh, does shift culturally. I think what's what's challenging is that these words, words like love, right, statements like God is love used to be baked into the American vocabulary and and they're not. But but we're still using the same language and the same exact statements are landing in completely different ways than they were even five, ten years ago. And that, that just makes it an additional challenge to illustrate what you're saying. But and it begs the question of whether America 50 years ago was using those words correctly, you know, then, sure. you know, uh, sure. But it had more of a framework for understanding. Sure. I mean, it yeah. was, it's interesting as you were talking about love is love. I was just noticing like the Buffalo Sabres. There's a big backlash because one of the players for another team didn't want to wear the rainbow jerseys. And so they came out with their their jersey for their version of Pride Night called Choose Love. And they're all black. So they got rid of the rainbow controversy. But it sat, you know, they're trying to satisfy the those who would say like, hey, I don't want to be bought into the LGBTQ agenda. But also it's that alone it puts it what you just were describing with that idea of love it brought to my mind like we have these issues in our culture that we have to take time to talk about what do we mean by that well i mean it it would be it would be like when you were a missionary i mean imagine halfway through your missionary term all of the language that you learned in order to contextualize the gospel suddenly changing midway through your missionary stint there right that that would be an additional challenge on top of already being a missionary in a certain culture and that's where I think what you're what you're hitting at there, Scott, is where I was yeah. pushing back on Ren a little bit mm-hmm. was to say, even in positive world, and sometimes maybe even most necessarily in positive mm-hmm. world, we need to be sure that when we are proclaiming the gospel, people who are nodding along to the language that we use mm-hmm. are actually hearing the biblical freighting and meaning behind that word. Because in the fifties, you say. God is love and Jesus loves you. And you're going to get a lot more people nodding along than you would today. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the Jesus who is conceived of or received there is the the biblical one or that the concept of love is. And so I think for the church, consistently being sure that the words familiar as they are that are being used to convey the gospel are being received and are communicating what the Bible intends to communicate is that contextualization task that's always going on. If we go back to the metaphor you've been using throughout, you use throughout the book, you talk about the front yard and uh, the difference between a manicured yard and a missional yard or missional ministry. Can you just unpack that a little bit? I think that can help with some of these uh, discussions as we think about what is how we go forward in this. Yeah. So on this one, I was just hitting on some of the things where you know, as a missionary, you're by necessity, usually working in ministry that is very small in number. You know, you're trying to see somebody grasp the gospel, walk through conversion, and then begin a life of early discipleship that it is immediately apparent that this young child in the faith needs somebody to walk them along, to teach them, to read scripture for themselves, and that in this context, you're the one who's going to do that. Um, that there's not a, a bunch of different people who are going to do that. So in some ways, it's just 
it's part of a task that makes it a life-on-life life sort of activity that your disciple-making mm. is going to be in that environment. But coming back home, there are many more structures mm-hmm. that are part of our discipleship process and programs and things that churches will implement, different environments that have a whole set of frameworks and efficiencies at times to them that can be programmatized and can be uh, encouraging people to maybe take a step away from that life on life and rather step into the role of a teacher behind a podium and hoping that the people who are receiving that information are taking it, applying it, and working it out when they disperse. And that becomes more efficient because you've got 20 people in a Sunday school room who are hearing one person who has expertise teaching rather than the the really nitty-gritty life-on-life work of, of pouring into somebody. When you get bigger and bigger ministry models presenting themselves as, as being able to more efficiently through one person and multiple sites of gatherings where you can pipe this message out, you get further and further removed on the for the sake of efficiency and for the sake of sometimes branding of a church or its its approach to ministry. And you begin to focus then on those efficiencies and those programs in ways that actually sometimes fight against those common means of grace, mm. ordinary means of grace of doing life in somebody's living room. And so I, I paralleled that onto the way that our backyard was something that really could have been manicured really well and, and beautifully. But my parents instead chose to put in this big, nasty cement pad and put up a rusty pole with a basketball hoop on it mm-hmm. because they knew that this was something that was going to produce an environment in which my dad would get home from work and we would spend hours shooting buckets. And in between games, he'd be discipling me in the way of life, mm. usually nursing my wounds as I had lost yet another, you know, <laughs> one-on-one competition with him and showing me what it looks like to be a Christian responding to defeat or disappointment. And life was happening in that space, even mm. though it wasn't manicured or branded, mm. it wasn't efficient or pretty. It wasn't attractive to passersby, but it was a stewardship of that space that made good use in the life of those who were entrusted to my parents mm. and pouring into my sisters and I. That's great. And just trying to push us as our churches to think through, mm-hmm. are we primarily moving towards efficiency, branding, a crispness to our ministry, or are we pushing towards making disciples in life-on-life, holistic sort of fashion? One thing that I like about that is you're acknowledging that houses have different rooms, different rooms of different functions. Churches are in different contexts and some some might need to manicure this spot a little bit more. Others need to, you know, put down a, a patio and invite people over. Right. There's there's different dynamics at play in all of those situations. Uh, what's what's your favorite room in the house and how does that inform your understanding of what the church should be too? Because recognizing that there's going to be different tendencies pulling in multiple directions in any church and being faithful might mean growing in, in different ways because no two, two churches will look alike. But for you, what was the favorite part of the house? If it wasn't the backyard, uh, what was yeah. the favorite part and what did that mean for the church for your understanding? Hmm. I would say probably the the one that I enjoyed writing the most that felt like it was the most all-encompassing 
was that that backyard piece of saying, and I, I tried to, and I hope it came through, not critique the, the programs altogether and certainly not undermine the role of the gathered community sitting under the preached word of uh, a shepherd uh, entrusted that that role of, of elder, but also saying that the church is more than those gathered times and instead is a community of people who have covenanted together to do life together and to disciple one another, to know one another well enough to recognize and affirm gifts in one another, um, to know one another well enough to be able to point out sin in one another's lives and to receive it. And my fear that sometimes that idea of American efficiency, of being able to say, we've discipled somebody because I can go on my church's organization calendar and I can check all the different boxes of activities that this person has been to and therefore they're discipled. Mm. Who are they? I, I don't I don't actually recognize that name, mm. but they've made their way through all of these programs. And just those, some of those things that have come into our, our orbit, maybe more from a, a business type orientation to our, our churches that have actually pushed relationships between those who are tasked with teaching, training and making disciples and those who are being discipled. Um, some, some of the distance that our, our programs have pushed in there at times has perhaps been counterproductive to our actually making of disciples. And so mm. I didn't want to decry all of those programs because I know those those things, the structure is a good thing to make sure that we have clarity around. Yeah, I was, I was just texting you the other day asking for some tips on a, on a piece of church structure for missions, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yes, absolutely. But even it, to your point in that one, that's a pipeline for us uh, that we call discipleship towards the field, mm -hmm. where we're looking at identifying missionaries, people who the Lord might be calling to the field evaluating them for their theological acumen, but then also intentionally setting them into meals with people on our global outreach team to talk about some specific issues in their life interpersonally. So part of that assessment, evaluation, and what will lead to deployment is making sure it's embedded in the context of relationships where people can point back and say, I didn't just do that activity, but I shared a meal with this brother who pressed in mm. on my integrity, mm. who asked me the hard questions about when the last time I looked at pornography was, man, it was uncomfortable, but golly, was it formative. Mm. And that person, I know if I get to the field, that person knows me well enough to actually pray for me and is now incentivized to read my newsletters. It wasn't part of a mechanized process that I was part of, but it was an intentionally interpersonal one. So it was pushing towards that. And I hope that came through. Mm. So as we think about foreign missionaries, what would you say some of the applications from Newbegin's missiology, and especially as you're taking it in the book, what are the parts that you think would be most applicable and helpful for missionaries serving overseas? I think his dogged commitment to the biblical church mm. uh, is something that is perennial need for missionaries to be attending to the church and its structures is something that uh, has certainly come under fire in broader culture here in the states usually for different reasons than it does on the mission field on the mission field oftentimes the church comes under fire as this 
slow-moving, hard-to-develop, bulky institution that actually fights against the rapid advance of making disciples in a place where they, there's desperate need um, for souls to hear the gospel. And so I think his focus on the church is going to be something that's essential. And another piece that I think he adds as a missionary is that he was on the field during the times that people started advancing what became known as the homogeneous unit principle of looking at where are people who have natural affinities for one another in pre-existing communities, mm -hmm. and let's cater the gospel message and the formation of churches to these distinct affinity-based peoples um, so that the gospel can move really rapidly through people who already have these existing similarities, and we'll just start a bunch of these homogeneous churches mm -hmm. that got exported back to the states as mm -hmm. the church growth movement. And so then you have cowboy churches and motorcycle gang churches and right. these real niche targeted things that really have more observable meaning as affinity groups than necessarily mm -hmm. gospel transformed communities. Yeah. Social clubs. Yeah. But I think one of the most beautiful things, and this is where I touch on some of the, the race issues in one of the chapters is that, in all of the talk that we have in the U.S. about the need for repairing relationships between black communities and white communities or other minorities that are at odds with one another, the broader culture is identifying patterns of sin. That should be a good thing for us as Christians to be able to say, yeah, brokenness and racism, that is sin. Mm. But can I tell you the only place that there is an actual remedy with some hope mm -hmm is in a gospel that reconciles all different shapes and varieties of sinners in one unified new humanity. Mm -hmm. I mean, the reality is the world is attentive to this brokenness and trying externally to figure out ways to come up with a fix, but there's no reason whatsoever, especially on a purely evolutionary mm -hmm. expectation of how the world works. Right. There is no reason that they would have any confidence that this is possible or even evolutionarily de desirable. For the Christian, though, we're not trying to create a unity, but we are trying to manifest a unity that we know is already yeah. true. And the world has yet to come up with anything like the church. I mean, if, if you look at what the church can do and how it how it brings together Jew and Gentile and, mm -hmm. you know, slave and free and all those sorts of things you see in the New Testament that you don't see anything remotely paralleling that from a purely secular origin. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, my hope is uh, that the church can can be that. On the mission field, I think sometimes the temptation when we go back to these narrow slices of people is that we miss out on the beauty that can be displayed when a community of diversity has a bunch of different gatherings instead of coming together as one and manifesting that gospel unity across sociological diversity. Mm. And so... Uh, that's one thing that I think Newbegin brings brings back into the conversation. That's great. Well, Matt, I really appreciate this. Uh, I'm hoping to dive into this myself soon. And tell us how people can get their hands on the book in whatever format you think is best. So it's supposed to come out uh, on February 21st. It should be available through Amazon and B&H. And uh, I think there's a, there's physical copies. I, I think they're going to do an, an e-book as well. So should have uh, ample access in just a couple mm -hmm. weeks to that. 
And I, and I want to say too, and, and Matt, maybe, maybe you can speak to this too, but knowing you, knowing your, your perspective on, on mission, this is not, you know, let's take a missionary approach to our, our secular culture from the standpoint of let's have a softer approach. Let's, let's sort of just, you know, give up the ghost as it were, and, and just kind of, you know, accept, you know, this is the way things are. I mean, it, obviously we have to reconcile ourselves to the sovereign will of God. And he's, he's put us in a situation where we're in a negative world, right? You acknowledge those realities, but one of the money quotes from the book, as we affirm Jesus as the sole and sovereign King, we subject any and all political rulers and nations to his authority. I mean, you have a profound sense of the authority of Christ over the nations. And, and that, that seems like it comes through in what you're talking about, uh, but also understanding that that manifests most of all, I mean, yes, you know, in, in all the spheres of life, but most of all, you see that in the church, right? Is there anything that you would leave listeners with uh, even along those lines, as far as what would they expect as they're diving into the book? Yeah, we're always reforming. Mm. And uh, one of the things that I think a missionary is naturally forced to do in every area of life when they transition from a home culture to a new one is to assess what around me means and how does it mean? Hmm. And then once you've identified some of those things, you're realizing, oh man, my whole life needs to be investigated. I think if you bring that same attitude back to places that are familiar, you begin to realize, man, I've just sort of acclimated myself to a bunch of different elements of my life because that's just what we do. And I've never taken the time to ask, what does that mean? And if we are to do that as a church, it's going to start with applying the biblical story and the biblical teaching to everything that we do and inspecting afresh. What are the forms that we need to critique within within the church in order to better reflect this message so that we can stand with total confidence that even if it means we face suffering in broader society, we're suffering not because of a bad expression of some biblical teaching that's causing offense, but on behalf of the gospel manifesting itself mm. through people who are convinced of its truth and have their allegiance pledged to a higher kingdom. Amen. Amen. The name of the book is Hope for American Evangelicals, A Missionary Perspective on Restoring Our Broken House. Matthew Bennett from Cedarville University. You can follow him on Twitter as well at mabennett82 on Twitter there. And uh, always good content coming from your brother. Uh, so thankful for your ministry. Thanks for joining us again. Uh, always a pleasure. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And thank you for being with us as well in this episode of the Missions Podcast. The Missions Podcast is a ministry of ABWE. To get more information on ABWE, go to abwe.org. To get more content from this show, go to missionspodcast.com. And if you value what you receive from the show, you can support us. You can join us as a partner. We know that times are tight, and yet the Lord is using content like this to help equip us for the days ahead. And you can join as a partner at missionspodcast.com slash support, missionspodcast.com slash support, and we appreciate that. But most of all, if the show's been a blessing to you, share it with a friend and leave a positive rating and review. As we mentioned at the start of the show, that helps get this content in front of others who can be blessed by it. The Missions Podcast comes out every Sunday night at 7 p.m. And so until next week, we'll see you then. Thanks and God bless.